So we're rolling with the punches here. We were talking a little bit beforehand, but uh, today, very excited um, because I'm bringing on Professor Paul Chirik, um, who is a professor of chemistry at Princeton, and he has many, many other accolades that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but uh, first things first is, and we were saying this a little bit beforehand, so I actually grew up in King of Pressure, Pennsylvania. I did my undergrad at Widener University. Um, but you were also born in Philly, uh, raised in Doylestown, though, a quaint little town there, about, mm, what, two hours north on the 611 from Philly? Oh, not, well, maybe maybe two hours uh, on a bad day, but okay. it's not that far. <laughs> that, okay. Yeah. <laughs> little town there. Yeah. So I want to get your thoughts on the Eagles going to a, another Super Bowl this year. Were you there? Did you drive back from Princeton to – join the parades for the NFC championship game. <laughs> no, no, I did not. Um, so that's a, that's a great question. I mean, you understand this. My, my dad actually used to work in King of Prussia when I was a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always thought that was just a very memorable name for a town, right? Usually a town's named Springfield or something like that. Right, right. Prussia, like, you know, this yeah. is in Germany, right? Why is it called King of Prussia? I don't even know the but, history uh, of Prussia, but like, yeah, right. right. And clearly the King, um, <laughs> So, yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, this when you grow up in that area, um, sports, especially the Eagles are a religion. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if if they're not the, doing well, the city, it's. Yeah. Quoted. You know, there's a there's a famous uh, anecdote that uh, I don't know if this is true anymore with online stuff, but it used to be true that the number of newspapers sold on Monday would like triple mm. if the Eagles won or if, you know, versus if they lost. I mean, yeah. people obviously don't want to read bad news so they right. you know they wouldn't buy a newspaper if the eagles lost a, a football game mm-hmm. this is you, you know you're you're uh, i'm guessing um a bit younger than me so this this is like vindication right the you know the last Ooh, five yeah years, right the eagles we would get tormented in like the 90s right when i was in college this is when randall yeah, cunningham was there and they had this great defense and they were always the cowboys doing well yep yeah and then something would happen right and they wouldn't get to the then there was the Andy Reid time where they would always go to the championship game and, and never advance and there was the one Super Bowl but but this year actually it just feels different right yeah they won in 2018 and you know maybe I'll you feel nervous going ahead because it's yeah, always be- when you're a Philly sports fan yeah <laughs> I mean <laughs> you know every time every time you see uh you know Jalen Hurts run you're just waiting for something to happen you know mm-hmm. i won't say it because i don't want to jinx it jinx but it, yeah that, that tells you right just because i can't even say it without even <laughs> thinking it's gonna somehow impact uh, yeah i was gonna say I, I see all these memes i mean people love trolling the cowboys fans so there i always see these lists of like like things in history that have been done since the eagle or the cowboys <laughs> have been to like an nfc championship game it's just it's just so funny the one i recently saw was like yeah jalen hurts was born Played football, won the did he win the Heisman? I don't remember. He but he won, right? He, he won he the CFP. Yeah. He did everything, and then now he's going to Super Bowl before the Cowboys have been back to the NFC Championship game. So it's been. Right. And I'm sufficiently, uh, you know, again old enough to remember the dynasty of the '90s with Emmitt right. Smith and Troy Aikman, and it was just painful. I bet. I'm, I'm painful. That is the right mm. word. Painful, and uh, <laughs> you know, there's certain colleagues in chemistry. Um, I'm talking about Mitch Smith in particular, who's a Texan. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it gives me grief about this, but hopefully the Eagles will win a few more and kind of yeah. keep them quiet for a while. It'll certainly be very interesting because obviously like the whole Andy Reid and then I think Patrick Mahomes versus Jalen Hurts. I'm not a huge football fan. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm definitely a, more of a soccer fan. But from what I've seen, I mean, I think Patrick Mahomes versus Jalen Hurts will be really cool. Yeah, and hopefully it'll be a good Super Bowl. I mean, there's mm-hmm. certainly enough storylines there for reporters to – 
fill web pages for the next two weeks over Surely. brothers playing each other, Andy Reid. Mm-hmm. You know, Do you follow that. like the Flyers or the Sixers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially the Phillies. So okay. uh, you know, I'm a big, big Phillies fan. Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my dad and I would go to a game every summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so he used to work for this local bank. Okay. And uh, he would get tickets. And uh, I don't know if the name Tug McGraw means anything to you. So Tug McGraw was the closer in 1980 when they won the World Series. Okay. And maybe one of the coolest things uh, that ever happened to me when I was a kid was for some reason, I don't know how, my dad got assigned to drive Tug McGraw around. He was the spokesperson for the bank. (laughs) And my dad got this like unbelievable job of being the guy that took tug mcgraw from point a to point b and so i, I got to meet him a bunch and when you're That's crazy nine years old and you get to meet right. somebody like this i mean it's not even almost like real right yeah it's, like it's a super, superhero yeah. or something. you remember this super nice super friendly mm-hmm. um you know I, he sadly died of brain cancer and mm-hmm. i don't know if you know this his son is tim mcgraw the, the singer what the singer the... Yeah, yeah yeah i'm not a country music person by any stretch but um small world yeah, has crazy weird, weird connections yeah yeah Right. But, really but yeah, cool. that was true. So I follow all of them. And, you know, my, my group gave me a Joel Embiid calendar for, for uh, our really? holiday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I probably devote way too, I probably should be saying this publicly, but I devote probably too much time to all this kind of stuff. Right. So I think, I mean, I think sports are a great avenue for just great outlets. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Phillies, Phillies, the Phillies, you know, they also had a really good season this year. I mean, they really had no business being in the playoffs, I think, but the fact that they went, well, I'm Definitely. talking to uh, someone who lives in Houston right now. So yeah. Move on you know, to another topic. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Listen, let me, I got to set the record straight because uh, I have a lot of people in Philly, like they're like shame me, but I, I, I don't really have a, like, I, I love playing. I just like being a troll. So like when I'm in Houston, I'll say I'm from Philly. And like when the Phillies are winning like game two, game three, you know, I'm, I'm out right. there trolling the Houston Astro fans. Right. But um, then they get no hit and whatever that was game. Yeah. Five, yeah. Think, yeah. Oh, man. And it's like, well, <laughs> no, so, they scored like 12 runs the night before and then the next mm-hmm. night right they couldn't keep the ball in the ballpark and then yeah. the next day they get no hit so but then like i'll I'll like yeah i'll like post like oh astros win game five on like social media and like and then i get only oh, philly fans start like coming at me so it's i just i mean for me it was just really funny i was along for the ride um right. but hopefully that i mean they got they just picked up trey turner though so hopefully the phillies yeah they make, no they look good for the season yeah I mean, I... make it make it make, run it back yeah um but anyway yeah so all right so yeah you, you grew up in in doylestown and then, uh, yeah. yeah, quaint little town up there. Um, then you went to Virginia Tech, though, to pursue your uh, bachelor's degree. Um, right. You did work under um, Mor- Morello? Morello? Joe Morola, yeah. Joe Morola, yeah. That's who, kind of a funny funny story there. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the first question I get asked a lot is, how the heck did you end up at Virginia Tech? And maybe to seg from the, the last mm. uh, discussion we just had, this is pre-Michael Vick. So I showed up there in 1991 and, you know, they didn't have the football team that they do now. And, mm. and some people say, well, why does that matter? Why it matters is when I would talk to people, when I would go back home and say, um, I go to Virginia Tech, they, they had no idea what it was. I mean, it was mm. like West Virginia. Where, where is that place? And I say, no, it's in this beautiful town called Blacksburg. And, and uh, people were like, oh, I never knew that. And then the football team got great. Now everybody knows about right. Virginia Tech. Mm. And, uh, so, so I ended up going there for, for, I think, almost two reasons. One, you know, I was 18 and a bit of a contrarian. So um, all <laughs> Let's of my go. friends in high school went to Penn State. And, yeah. you know, I remember meeting with my guidance counselor like and Temple I knew nothing whatever. about college. You know, my parents didn't really go to college. So mm-hmm. uh, this, this world that we live in now where you have like a 
10 year old kid and they're thinking about where they're going to college is like that. That's like another planet to me. Right. Um, so I didn't really start my college uh, process until I was probably almost a, a senior in the fall. And uh, it was cheap. I mean, it was really cheap at the time. Out-of-state tuition was was really inexpensive. Um, mm-hmm. Had a small scholarship to, to study chemistry, and I went there to visit and and just fell in love with the with the place. Um, yeah. it's a beautiful place in the in the you know the mountains of Virginia, and mm-hmm. uh, and and then how I ended up in Joe's lab was um, I don't know if they still do this, but. Uh, you would, as a chemistry major, I took uh, intro chem. I, I took AP chem in high school, but then I was so um, brutal course, whatever. I you know I did fine on the exam, right, and mm-hmm. and I got five or whatever it is. And I could have skipped, but I just lacked so much confidence that I said, "There's no way I got to retake intro chem." So I did, and what the heck? And I'm glad I did actually, because you know I tell people that a lot of life's uh, chemistry problems are solved by introductory chemistry stuff. So it's really good to know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was in a majors class and, and what we had were these uh, kind of recitation sections. And it was cool because the faculty would come in to the recitation sections and then just talk about their research. And, uh, you know, I would tease, there's a, a guy there named Jim Tanko, who's this organic chemist. And I would tease him because his research was really cool, but the requirements were like, you need to be in differential calculus and have an element named after you and like all this crazy stuff. And it's like, I can't <sighs> do that. So Marola walks in and he starts talking about catalysis with iridium, these organometallic compounds. And I had never seen anything like it. And I was thinking, wow, this sounds really cool. Like, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I like chemistry, especially back when I was young, was this idea of the periodic table, right? That there's all right. these different elements and they do different things. And there's like weird ones like iridium that you just don't see in your life. And he was studying that. And I thought that was cool. And then he got to the to the punchline, which was the requirements. Like, what was it going <laughs> to take to join this guy's life? And the requirement was eagerness to learn. Fair and enough. I said, I can do that. <laughs> mm, yeah. I'm well qualified for that. So I, I very nervously walked up to him and said, you know, would you be interested in this freshman wanting to come join your lab? And he kind of blew me off. Now, he denies this. So if you ever talk to him, he's going to deny this. <laughs> uh, but this is, you know, he would not remember this because he was the big shot. And I was, you know, nobody. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to remember. And then about like um, two months went by and I guess he probably had nobody else join his lab or something. And he, he comes up to me in the hallway and he said, uh, are you still eager to learn, you know? And I said, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I, I got a place in his lab and uh, that's probably why I'm sitting here today, you know, editor-in-chief of Organometallics. You yeah. look at it that way. I mean, that started my time in crazy. organometallic chemistry, 18 years old, 19 years old, and mm-hmm. now I'm almost 50 and that's where it all started. Yeah, I, I definitely I definitely can relate to that because like I was, originally I was undergrad, I was chemical engineering. And so, which is fine, but chemical engineering is a lot of like, I don't know. It's a lot of applications and like, I tell so, my intro chem class, it's glorified plumbing. Yeah. That's <laughs> certainly one way of putting it. Honestly, I don't think my no disrespect to plumbers. They get, they do great work. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah it's, and, but like, there was just like, I, I wasn't really feeling the, the, the applications of it. Um, and I know some professors, they'll do like carbon oxide capture, like moths, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, you know, it was like, I don't know. But then I reached out to, um, Professor Lloyd Baston, who was my undergraduate advisor, like sophomore year. And I was like, well, he was doing like basically like introductory total synthesis, I guess in some case, like Diels Alder and a microwave, like stuff like that. Like, and it was just like, I was like, wow, okay. He was like, what projects do you have? And like, I hopped on those projects and it was just kind of, I was just in the lab by myself, basically just doing this stuff because it was pretty cool. And then, uh, you know, now I'm here as a graduate student. So a lot of, a lot of things I, I got to give to him because he just kind of like gave me a project to work on in my free time. 
And, uh, you know, yeah, so, you know, I, I tell my graduate students and postdocs this all the time when I go to them and say, hey, you know, we have an undergrad who wants to join the lab, you know, will you mentor them? And if they're not so excited at first, I usually remind them that somebody did that for us, right? Yeah. That's how we ended up where we are. And, mm. uh, you know, it's really important to, to catch people when they're young and early in their science careers, right? To get them in the lab. Because, you know, we love what we do, right? And right, yeah. We, we hope so yeah, anyway. Share it with other people. Yeah. I think we still hope to turn them onto it, right? Right. Yeah. yeah we yeah. want to get, yeah. I mean, science, I mean, especially like, especially the, the work that, you know, you do in sustainable chemistry, like we need as many people on this as we can. Like, I think we need, yeah, we need, absolutely. Um, but I actually want to go back real quick. So, how did you like originally get into chemistry? Because, um, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I this, this is, this is kind of not a good story for the, uh, you know, and I'm not the uh, chemistry set guy, you know, they, sure. that's like the, whatever the story everyone wants to hear. I was blowing stuff up in my backyard. No. Mm. Um, so, so I wanted to be a historian actually. Sure. Um, I still do love history and uh, thought I wanted to do that. And um, I, I never thought I would get a job to be honest with you. And um, I was worried about that, you yeah. know, and, and I knew it was a burden, um, you know, for my family to send me to college. And I just had a hard time reconciling, going there and potentially not getting, you know, a reasonable job. And, sure. uh, I, I like chemistry. I mean, I, I for sure. I mean, I, I, it's obviously my life's passion now, but, mm -hmm. um, that was really it. And so it was kind of like a, maybe 51, 49, you know, history and, and chemistry. And I thought I would get a job in chemistry. I always thought, you know, when I was an undergrad, I probably would end up working at a company somewhere. That's because yeah. you don't know, right. I didn't mm -hmm. know what a PhD was. I didn't know any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, so yeah. And, you know, I, I ended up minoring in history and had a great experience at Virginia tech um, with the history yeah. department. So, yeah. Yeah. Virginia tech is very, uh, I mean, yeah. Like you mentioned before, I mean, Virginia is a beautiful state. It's very like uh, low key. Um, yeah. Except around Charlottesville. Yeah. Okay. I'm just kidding. If you're from Virginia tech, you know, things that go on in Charlottesville <laughs> are, are not yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> I remind Breck to know that all the time when I yeah, see yeah. it. Uh, you know, no, yeah. nothing of consequence ever comes from UVA. <laughs> so what were you doing in uh, Mariola's lab? Like, what were you, because you in, mentioned. Yeah, in, in Joe's lab. Um, so what, what, so he really, you know, I think um, pioneered the thoughts in my mind that, you know, I probably didn't appreciate it at the time, but basically the way he would present the work was th there are these metal catalysts, homogeneous catalysts that do um, really remarkable transformations, hydrogenations, mm -hmm. things like that. And you need to use uh, organic solvent to do it. And he was really big into trying to do organometallic chemistry in water. Yep. So Very that's really what I, that's what I studied was, was, could you take, you know, if you try to dissolve Wilkinson's compound in water, it's just, mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, right. You know, this, you work in Brad's lab. I mean, what do we spend a lot of our time doing getting water out of things, right. Yeah. You know, you know, working glove boxes and shank lines and all that. And uh, so it was to try to get catalysts to work in, in water. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was interesting because I also had an internship that helped pay my way through college. I worked at a color company. Nice. <laughs> in the summer, which is a whole nother hill of uh, interesting stories. But, <laughs> um, and at the same time, it was kind of, too, I mean, this is the early 90s. I'm sure that seems like the middle ages to you, but. Um, <laughs> I'm a 90s kid. I'm born in yeah, 99. Okay. Yeah. So this was, you know, a remarkable time. There was like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and. and uh, One of my favorite just, bands, by the way, Pearl Jam. <laughs> Love Pearl Classic Jam. Classic rock, right? Um, so 
what was going on at the color company was we would make uh, pigment dispersions, things that would go into car paints and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge movement in that industry at that time to get rid of volatile organic compounds. So mm -hmm. not have, so when you, you know, make a, a colorant that you don't have some, you know, tetrachloroethylene go into the atmosphere. Right. Right. So that was going on to kind of pay the bills in the summer. And then Joe's lab was don't use methylene chloride to do, you know, a catalytic reaction that all seemed like sustainable chemistry to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we really called it that back then. I was just right. happy you know, I could go in the lab and make right, some just... new compounds and stuff would work and, right. you know, getting phosphorus into our spectra and growing, you know, the first crystal <laughs> where we're all enamored with our crystal structures. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah so cool. that, that was, uh, that was how it all started. So that's what I worked on. I worked on these iridium catalysts that you could chuck in water. Yeah. And you actually, I actually want to ask you about this uh, um, because of your maybe expertise in, in sustainability is I, one of the biggest problems in chemistry in general is always like, you know, workup and, um, extractions, like cleaning up your compounds, isolating it because yeah. we go through, I don't even, I don't even want to know the number of how much yeah. organic waste we go through. Um, Huge. so can you explain like what, obviously to the average person, like obviously doing chemistry in water would be better, but why can't we do things in water in as in general especially with like organometallics like yeah well first i think is this often the sensitivity you know mm -hmm. organometallic chemistry i think if you integrate it over all space has been the chemistry of reducing compounds right mm -hmm. things that are highly reduced so you start putting them in your protons oxygen right they're gonna they're gonna react in ways that you you don't want you know, the field grew up a lot you know trying to reduce inert molecules right mm -hmm. n2 carbon monoxide renaissance and co2 but you know the, even the founders of the field were thinking about those things so i think it just happens to be where the field came from came from mm -hmm. and, and you know that's an incompatibility you know this this question of water actually as a solvent for organometallic reactions it's an interesting one you know i think it, it hits on a, a really perplexing issue in sustainability and that is there are things that sound sustainable on the surface, but mm -hmm. when you actually analyze them, they turn out not to be. And I think it depends on the specific reaction of doing a reaction in water is actually, you know, getting rid of dirty water, especially if it's contaminated with a heavy metal, mm -hmm. that can be really problematic. Uh, uh, okay. The kind of things that, that Joe's lab was really uh, excited about was at the time, and I think some of this still goes on. There was a, a process, uh, it's probably called something else now, called the Rhone-Polonc uh, hydroformylation process. And so what okay. you could do is you'd put a rhodium catalyst in the aqueous layer, mm -hmm. right? So it would swim around there. And then you would have your organic substrate that you're hydroformulating, you know, think of your SEP funnel, right? And so the chemistry would happen at the interface. And then what you could do is just siphon off the, the organics off the top. And your catalyst is, you know, effectively supported in the sense that it just stays. Mm. You don't have the dirty water problem, right? That you have this continuous flow of, of substrate turning into product and you have your catalyst confined to this aqueous medium and oh, that's very cool. lost and, and all that kind of stuff. So that, that to me sounds really good. I, I think as we move forward, like you look at it, the way some of the pharma industry is going, right. They're doing chemistry on biological molecules, right. I mean, mm -hmm. not just um, big, you know, organic molecules, but like peptides, proteins, that's what drugs yeah. are starting to look like now. So you're going to have to learn how to do organometallic chemistry in water again. Um, and you see For some sure. of that from some of the work that, you know, people like Steve Buckwald have done, like trying to get cross couplings to work on, on polypeptides on protein. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. That's really, yeah. It's definitely a, uh, it's an exciting field to say the least. I think uh, there's so much work to be done. Um, yeah. And as far as like, we're going to talk like cobalt, iron, um, copper, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's just so much to be done. And so it's yeah, sure. a never ending field. Um, so, okay. So you're at, you're at Mariola's lab. When, when, when did you like, was it a process to like go to graduate school? Like when did that kind of come into yeah, play? When did that come up? I think, you know, again, I, I was working at this place in the summer and <laughs> I think I can say this. Why not? I think, you know, the big deal was like, yeah, I think the people at this company thought, you know, okay, this guy shows up to work on time. He's not a, a danger to himself or others. You know, we might want to keep him around. And they they came me maybe my junior year and they said, if you want a job here, you know, we'll pay you like $40,000. And I thought like, oh my gosh, this must be, this is like payday. Jeff, Jeff Bezos money, yeah. right? <laughs> this is big time stuff. And I remember going home to my parents and telling them and they're like, yeah, that's great. But just, you know, take the long view. Don't forget about the long view. And then I went and talked to Joe about it. And he's like, yeah, you can do that if that's what makes you happy. But you really should think about, you really like research. You're clearly into it. Mm-hmm. You think about going to graduate school. And I remember going in, and this is what the great thing about Virginia Tech and, and Joe's lab was, is that, you know, I was a grad student. And the group at the time was maybe, or undergrad, and the group maybe had three or four grad students in it. So I could walk into his office just about any time and meet mm-hmm. with them one-on-one. We'd look at data, work on, you know, he let me give some talks and stuff and you know all that. So uh, he was really a great mentor. I mean, hands-on. He never went into the lab, thankfully, but yeah. in terms of being approachable. Uh, yeah. And so I remember him telling me, he's like, here's some names of people. And uh, this is what you should think about doing. He was an MIT guy. So he worked with DeepMar, Cypher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was kind of enamored with uh, MIT for a while and thinking about going to work with Dick Schrock and do metathesis. That was all the rage back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but then ultimately, I, you know, I ended up at Caltech. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very, uh, you left the East Coast to go to the West Coast there. Um, yeah, so how did you... big deal at the time for me. Yeah, um, yeah. You know... I, I, it's just, I was telling this, I, I taught intro chem yesterday and I was telling my, I called on someone and the guy kind of like slunk down in his chair and I said, don't feel bad. You know, if that was me when I was 18, I, I might, you know, I, I'd be crying, you know, if, if a professor called on me and like, you know, I was, yeah. people, you know, with my personality now, I've got a big personality and all that kind of stuff. I was not like that when I was an undergrad, I was, mm. I was really unsure of myself, lacked a lot of confidence, um, especially in the academic world. Because I, I just didn't know it. I, did, I didn't know any of this stuff. And to be honest, you know, when I went on graduate visiting weekends, I was intimidated mm. because there were all these other students from all these fancy pants places. And it was like, whoa, I had done research in this big shots lab or that big shots lab. And it's like, you're from Virginia where, you know, that kind mm. of stuff. And I was like, I don't know if I belong in this world. Right. Mm. So uh, growing up, you know, we would you probably did this, too. Like vacation was like the Jersey Shore. It's right? a beautiful like, place. V- yeah, very... we would go to Wildwood. I mean, that's like what we did. And like my dad and I, you know, we would do things like big trips we would do uh, in the summer. Uh, he would, we would go to like uh, Hall of Fames. We would go to Cooperstown. We yeah. would go to Springfield, Massachusetts, go to the basketball one. It was like the big trip. Yeah. I, I had never really gotten on an airplane before. Right. Right. I mean, that sounds like nuts in this <laughs> 2023. But um, I can imagine though. Mm-hmm. So, so like flying to California was like, you know, putting me on like SpaceX and going to the space station. I mean, you know, so what was, was that conversation? Like, what was that conversation with your parents? Like, were they like ready? Do for, it. Do really? it. Okay. You know, yeah. yeah. My mom used to tell me that when I was really small, like three, four years old, and she would ask me what I'd want to do. She'd say, I would always say when I was little, I was going to go and live on the beach in California. Um, I don't know why I would say that. That's not why I went to Caltech though. Um, I, I went to Caltech and it was, re- I, I really applied there because of, you know, Joe told me this is like, 
one of the best places. It was, you know, the heyday of, of John Burkaw and, and, and Bob Grubbs doing organometallic chemistry there. Yep. And uh, I basically said, yeah, I'm going to take my spring break and go mm. and just check it out. Go to California finally, right? They're going to pay mm. for it. Oh my gosh, unbelievable. So I did that. And then uh, I went to the campus and and met John and met Grubbs and, and, I mean, sure, like... and some other people at the time. And, and just, it, it was cool. And I remember that. And I remember thinking to myself a lot, can I really do this? You know, I, I want to do it, but can I really pick up and move to the other side of the country? Mm-hmm. And uh, I say this to people in my lab all the time. You know, I, I just had a, I just, I have now a visiting student, um, a visiting graduate student from Spain. And I just can't imagine <laughs> myself at age 20, whatever, going to another country kind of sight right. unseen, you know, that kind of thing and just doing it. I just was not that adventurous back then. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I did it and uh, it turned out okay. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it seems like you're, you're, you're fine now. So <laughs> um, <out> fun. <laughs> um, I am, I do want to talk to you about John Burkow a little bit because uh, as I was like going through like uh, some of your publications and just, you know, just reading about you before I had you on um, is that, you know, you studied the mechanism of metallocene catalyzed olefin polymerization and hydrometallation. Now I'm curious about your contributions to this because I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Are they minimal? <laughs> Huh? <laughs> My no, 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 well, no, no, not at all, not at all. Um, no, no, I because I think for a lot of people, obviously, like unless you're not in the chemistry world, I mean, you know, I think Ziegler Nata type polymerizations are still used industrially to make polypropylene oh, polymers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. everywhere uses it. So, in addition to that, you know, um, because of John Burkhall and his group and colleagues, you know, you can make syndiodactic, hemioisotactic, isotactic polymers. All you can make it all basically because. Yeah, yep. It was, you know, his group, you know, his colleagues that and really, rationally, rationally, yeah. that, that's, that, that I think is the, is the key is that, you know, people had these maybe empirical relationships that you knew, and this is what really turned me on to it when I met with John, I had never seen someone who could take something. It's like, okay, you know, you can take propylene, polymerize it over this little metallocene catalyst that had rings in a certain way They had to be C2 symmetry. And it would make a hard plastic that you could then make a toothpaste cap out of. And I thought, man, that is unbelievably cool. And then he was asking all of these questions about why is it so selective, you know, and regio, you know, an antio selective, right? Or stereo selective. And the way he thought about doing experiments, I mean, these really intricate isotopic labeling experiments. And, you know, back, back then, this is 95 now, this was really the peak of the metallocene revolution that right. was going on, you know, and everybody, it's interesting, right? I, I think about this a lot. You go to ACS meetings or uh, organometallic Gordon conferences, and there's kind of like, a, a, a there's, there's epochs of like, you know, back in the nineties, most people were studying metallocene and olefin polymerization. And then there was like a post-metallocene era that Schrock and Dave McConville and, and lots of others mm-hmm. got into. And then like, there was kind of a cross coupling age, you know, that kind of thing. But this yep. was the height of all that metallocene stuff. And and John was not, the, the cool thing that John was not doing was just making new catalysts. Like he wasn't just randomly throwing us in the lab saying, okay, we got to make the next best catalyst for Dow or Exxon or something like that. It mm-hmm. wasn't that. It was, you know, maybe we, we will do that, but we're going to do it by understanding how systematically systematically yeah. and and the big the big question at the time was why was it at a 14 electron active species that you needed to do this and it was you know right before i got there they had just done the experiments on the alpha agostic effect and, mm. and how that went through and 
to me as a young grad student, I mean, the integration of just really sophisticated NMR experiments and isotopic labeling and the mechanism. And, uh, you know, he, he would always tell me this and I, I t- it sticks with me to this day. It's about asking the right questions, right? Mm. Like a research project, right? And, and you look at a molecule and say, how in the world? And, and I think we give the organic chemists way too much credit for this, right? If you say, what's one of the most enantioselective homogeneous catalyzed reactions? You might think it's a hydrogenation or, yeah. or something else. It, it's actually olefin polymerization. I mean, these things polymerize and, and, and the catalysts are so active. Mm. Right, they're doing a million enchangements in you know minutes, and it's like ninety nine point nine nine percent EE. If you were this the polymer, people don't call it that, right? They don't right. call it EE, right? They they call it a a tacticity. So so that was the big deal stuff, and then um, now we real quick, were you familiar with this metallocene stuff as an undergrad, or was this all no, like basically brand no, new like, to you? I knew ferrocene, and like yeah. so the 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 story I tell people is uh <laughs> we had to take. Uh, inorganic lab as undergrads sure and this is like old school stuff i mean this is going to make me sound like you know <laughs> uh, mendeleev or something it's so old but we had a, a choice when you took this it was a practical inorganic chemistry lab and they said if you make ferrocene you get a c if you make nicolacine you get a b if you make cobaltocene you get an a because that's the most you know air sensitive hardest one to to make so you do air sensitive stuff in like an undergraduate lab. Yeah. 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 It was small. It was only a few majors. This was, Virginia tech was great. Right. We yeah. did all this kind of stuff. I mean, we were, we were doing this and, uh, and before you ask, I made cobalt scene. <laughs> there you go. I don't want to see it on Twitter that I, I got to see an inorganic lab. Uh, um, so, so yeah, I, you know, I had not thought about, and maybe I think that was some of the enamor too of working with John that, you know, I kind of spent my time doing late metal chemistry right? It was square planar mm-hmm. compounds, water, all that stuff. And here was this guy messing around with scandium. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. Well, who <laughs> <You know>? cares? Like, <laughs> And then they had, he had these like really cool vacuum lines, right? Not just a little flank line. I mean, like these big, huge vacuum lines and the techniques were really cool. And, and these molecules were so reactive and, and sensitive mm-hmm. and stuff. And, uh, yeah. and so that, that was kind of the history of it all. Yeah. yeah that's, that's really, that's really fascinating because I mean, especially like coming into Houston as an undergrad, I, it's funny to me because like I moved, I came down to Houston like because I liked the city. I didn't necessarily, I didn't even know who the big names were here. Like I didn't right. know we had OLS. I didn't know we had Ava. Right. I didn't know we had Brad. So it was just right. funny. Like you know, I meet all these professors that are just sitting here who are doing really cool work, and uh, you know, you walk into their labs like, oh my god! Like I had no idea what yeah, was. Yeah, you know, and possible. maybe this is maybe this is the jump us into the next topic. So I found picking a graduate advisor pretty easy. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it was easy was because I was so naive. Right. I didn't think about all the stuff that you know by the time then you become like a third, fourth year grad student. And it's like, yeah, I'm thinking about going to academia. I want to do a postdoc. And then you realize, oh man, to pick a postdoc advisor, now you know all these things that can go wrong. Right. <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. then you're way more specific about who you want to work with mm-hmm. and, uh, and maybe have all these different boxes you want to tick and stuff. Right. And so, so the postdoc choice was a lot harder for me. Sure. Um, he did, we did, I forget, I forget who you did it with Kit at, at MIT, Kit, Kit Cummins MIT. at MIT. Yeah. yeah. Which was again, a, a, I think a really transformative, uh, scientific experience for me mm-hmm. because again, it was, you know, he, he was, if the world zigs, Kit zags. I mean, mm-hmm. Kit is one of the most creative people in, in science that I've ever met. And I've always admired him about that. So 
you know, if if everybody in the 90s was talking about olefin polymerization at an ACS meeting, mm-hmm. there's one thing that Kit Cummins was not talking about. <laughs> he would not be doing that. And uh, so what he was doing at the time, this was, so in my year of first year grad student, um, it was all the rage. I remember this was, there was an undergrad at MIT named Catalina La Plaza, and she had split nitrogen um, with this oh, three, three coordinate molybdenum compound that Kit had. And, and so then I kind of knew when I went to Caltech that I probably was going to want to do a postdoc at MIT because it was like really a close decision when all that went down. And then I followed Kit's program really closely. And he came to Caltech when I was a grad student and gave a seminar. And again, it just sounded unbelievable. You know, I'd worked, it was working at the time on all these early metal things, D zero F zero or, you know, D zero F zero oxidation state, Mm -hmm. everything diamagnetic. And this, guy was showing you know paramagnetic compounds so you have to deuterate the ligand so you can see an nmr spectrum you know just <sighs> thinking about things in a totally different way and um really i think i you know i think kit's famous for a lot of things i mean he does you know he's made you know amazing molecules cleave nitrogen now he's doing you know unbelievably interesting main group stuff making as3p and all these un- unbelievable small molecules but I think the thing that he did in the in the 90s and the early 2000s that really turned me on was he got, I think, the community, the organometallic, what I'll call the organometallic community, thinking about things with unpaired electrons mm. and not being afraid of them. And I think, you know, from 91 to 2000, before I did that, you know, I worked either in iridium-1 chemistry, rhodium-3 chemistry. Like if you had something paramagnetic, that was like a failure, <laughs> right. right? You didn't want that because you wanted to get these nice NMR spectra. And 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 as, as trivial as that may sound, I think Kit taught me that, that you can do really amazing chemistry in the world of things that don't have NMR spectra. And don't be afraid of that. Mm. And, that- and like you said before, there's so much to do in iron and cobalt and copper chemistry. And I get asked all the time, you know, the president of the university, when she hired me here at Princeton said, you know, I get it from a sustainability point of view, but why the heck would a chemist use palladium, not iron, to do a cross-coupling, right? And it's like, well, it works. That's why. But yeah. someone from the outside, it's like, well, iron should be the metal of choice for everybody because that's like the one that the Greeks knew about. Right? So why have chemists shied away from it? And it's because I think, you know, we didn't, we know how to make 18 electron things with carbonyls and CPs on them. Mm-hmm. But to put iron in a weak ligand field and then think about doing catalysis with it was not something that organometallic people thought about. You know, bioorganic, mm-hmm. bioinorganic chemists did, but not us. Yeah. So I, yeah, I definitely want to pick your brain about this a little bit because it, I, I know, like, especially like, I mean, the easy example I, I like to point to is obviously like cross coupling. So, like, I mean, mm-hmm. the using palladium catalysts to do cross coupling, I mean, that is, I mean, it's, it, it won a Nobel Prize, and we could argue about who deserved it. Uh, oh, my phone is about to go off. Hang on, one second. <laughs> Let me turn this off real quick. Hopefully, not a real fire. All right. The house is not on fire. Okay, we're good. good. We're, we're good. <laughs> well, that would um, be a memorable discussion. It would be, you know, <laughs> my house is on fire, Paul, please. Um, 
But my answer is really important, Aiden. Yeah. You have to stay and listen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Flames are behind you. Right, right. It was right. that meme, right, with the dog, right? Oh, sitting yeah, you're sitting down. Coffee. Everything's great. He's like, everything's great. Everything's fine. <laughs> That's my podcast yeah. with yeah. you. <laughs> um, but no, like, like it's so like I was saying, I mean, the, you know, it, the cross-coupling, and like I said, we can argue about who deserved the, the Nobel Prize for yeah. cross-coupling. But the point is, is that, you know, it was, it, it was Pladium, and probably the arguably the biggest reason that platinum's used so much was one you know 30 years ago it wasn't that expensive but also yeah the systems are just well defined it's you know two zero electron cycle catalytic cycle it's just easy it works and, and you know i think i think the thing about palladium cross coupling and one of the reasons why we stayed away from cross coupling for a long time in our you know earth abundant metal catalysis program is the bar is so high mm. Right. For an SP2, SP2 cross coupling, you know, I would talk to LC Campo at Merck and and a guy named Matt Tudge who preceded LC in the role of the in the catalysis group. And we collaborated with him and he would say things like, you know, do you know why the Suzuki reaction is the most performed CC bond forming? Reaction? It's, it's because it works on almost everything. I mean, you know, they have these nasty molecules that have nitrogen heterocycles all over the place. Free this, free that halides. And the damn thing always works and it works at really low loadings. A lot of the time yep. you can use it on the bench, you know, the preferred reagents, all that, all that stuff. And so, you know, I think this is an interesting discussion to have about a research topic. And when you choose one, and I, I'm not saying we did it right or wrong, but, you know, do you not go into a field at first because the bar's too high, you know, right. and, and it gets into this and Brad and I, you know, still, I think would argue about this. Do you need an iron catalyst to do SP2, SP2 if part per trillion palladium will do one, mm. right? You know, the, the famous nature catalysis incident that that happened, right? Yep, yep, yep. You know, that, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, there was the dirty stir bars. You know, we've heard, had palladium cross-couplings. You know, Nanakoff talks about this all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the stir bars that are cross-couple stuff. So, um, you know, where I've, you know, ultimately that always comes down to resources, meaning do you have the money to do it? Do you have the people to do it? And, you know, we've now ventured into the area one, because I think we have a good problem to work on. And, and the other is that it gets more into what my interests are, which is the, the fundamental organometallic stuff. You know, can you, do you, if you want to do iron cross coupling, do you have to use a two electron palladium like cycle, or can you do something else, you know, mechanistically, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do electrophile activation? How are you going to do, you know, not using the words that we always use, oxidation, transmittation, you know, right. does it have to be that? And, and the answer is, you know, I think pretty convincingly now, no. Right. You don't have to do it the way palladium does it. And now all of a sudden I'm in, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to displace palladium at Merck or BMS or anywhere, but now it's a fun chemistry problem. Like it's a really right. cool organometallic chemistry problem, right? Mm. And uh, I think that that's what, um, has us going. And I think that's the most important thing for, for me in our group is that there's all these, you know, big time applications you know, you want to get rid of palladium. You want to do this, you want to do that sustainability, the whole thing. But at the end of the day, it comes back to organometallic chemists sometimes don't know how to do X. Mm. Right. And, and, and that is just like, to me, that's the ideal research project. When you have this fundamental organometallic chemistry question, how in the world do you make a CC bond at open shell iron? Right. Mm -hmm. Along with the practical thing, like, whoa, if you can do that, you know, now you're getting rid of, you know, huge amounts of palladium in, in the pharmaceutical industry or wherever else it's used. And right. that has obvious impact. So it's like, that's like the perfect circle if you can pull it off. Mm -hmm. I think, 
I think for other people to understand too is as far as I understand, palladium. I think the problem with palladium is that one, it is expensive. Like, I mean, 25 grams, right. Is like, I don't know what, $3,000, something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly, but the price changes. That's one of the problems. I was gonna say, that's probably the bigger problem is that I think any, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of palladium deposits are in Russia. So there's a huge geopolitical, there's yeah, absolutely. Geopolitical problem with that. Um, So, you know, it'd be great if, you know, we as scientists didn't have to rely on, you know, Russia to get these, um, mm-hmm. to get these brush the middles. Yeah. Or anyone, it'd be great. Anything, yeah. honestly, if, if, as I think the, yeah, it'd be better if we can get metals from America, honestly, that would be the cheapest way to do it is just right. get the metals from here, which I think, I assume, I actually don't really know the answer to this, but I assume America has iron deposits. It's everywhere. <laughs> we have a it's lot. Everywhere. Yeah. We make a lot of steel, so it's okay. Yeah, you can, you can get iron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so and that's a really fun thing to, um, you know, I, this is more maybe a borderline between, you know, my day job and then kind of a personal interest, you know, learning about where elements come from. And, mm-hmm. and, and then there's another question that kind of is buried underneath that, you know, is it true that palladium comes from, you know, South Africa and Russia? Yeah. And does it need to? You know, maybe that is the case for palladium, but for some other metals like cobalt, for example, if you want to go there, right? Cobalt is getting a bad name because of the issue in the Congo. Yeah, you see that? You see upside with Joe Rogan and that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I made my group watch it. Yeah, I made my group watch it. I mean, it's like you know, it is the most heartbreaking thing to watch. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But then the other question is: Does cobalt need to come from the Congo? And and I guess the question is, is what does the word need mean? The answer, I think, geologically is no. Right. It's not like cobalt is only in the Congo on planet Earth. It's, it's you know, in the United States, it's in Canada, it's in Australia. Mm-hmm. But then there's all kinds of other stuff that are well beyond the purview of us to deal with it. You know, I, I used to start lectures with this. You know, the, the second most difficult place to get a mining permit on the planet is the United States. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you have a choice, you're going to dig a hole in Minnesota to pull cobalt out or you're going to go to the Congo. Well, it's like a lot of other things that go on in, you know, globalization and economics and all that kind of stuff is that you go where it's cheapest. Right. That's and, uh, and I think, yeah. you know, someone in your generation needs to start thinking about what does the word cheapest mean? It doesn't just mean money. Mm. Right. And if you look at that video from that Joe Rogan thing. And you see those kids and you hear that. I don't know if you watched the part where he shows the video from his phone and you hear that clanging. Yep. When yep. these people are digging the stuff up with their hands, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that's just horrible. Right? Yeah. I think, yeah, hopefully. And I, I hope that a lot of, uh, you know, scientists, I mean, obviously you're, you're well-versed in like, I mean, um, current events, but hopefully a lot of other scientists are, are aware of like these issues too, that, and hopefully that we can make a voice for, you know, start mining these, 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 yeah, and I think ultimately, here. though, at the end of the day, I think you do want to get away from cobalt for various reasons to mm. go to um, iron, you know, mm. but that doesn't mean I, I think, you know, we I wrestle with this daily, you know. Um, yeah, cobalt might not be perfect, but it doesn't mean you don't study it. I mean, first of all, right. there's just I think we lose sight too much in 2023 in academia that we're that we're academics, right? We right. should be studying the fundamental chemistry of cobalt. I mean, that absolutely is a must. Uh, you know, people study the fundamental chemistry of plutonium. Right. That is a must, right? Uranium, like, yeah. Uranium, everything, yeah. I mean, we should be doing this stuff. This is what basic science is about. It's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we, we're too applied sometimes, right? And and we think about this because, you know, you got to have 
your answer to everybody why it's so important. But, um, you know, we've learned, you know, and, and that's a, that's a an interesting discussion. And and I defer to my pharma colleagues for this because some are like, yeah, cobalt's way better than palladium. We'll we'll do a cobalt catalyzed reaction you know, nine days a week compared to a palladium one. Right. And then people say, no, we don't want to do a cobalt catalyzed reaction, you mm. know? So it's, it's, and it, and it ultimately depends on what the reaction is. And is there another way to do it? Right. Right. Mm. So if you got a cobalt reaction that nothing else can do, you're going to do it. And if it's really yeah. valuable. Right. Yeah. I, the four steps. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that is a good point you make though, is that in academia, like in, in grad students, like we, we don't necessarily have a, a, a political say in how like these, I, we do have a say, but like, we're just, we're just that though. We're the scientists. We're not necessarily the application. Right. So like, you know, especially like polymer chemists, like, you know, like we're trying to make new polymers, but like, we're not, t- we're not taking the one to industry scale. Right. Like we're not ones doing that. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of times and a lot of the famous examples from organometallic chemistry that have made it into industry. I don't know that the people who started doing it, that was their goal. I mean, right. Right. I mean, Suzuki did not study the Suzuki reaction. And, you know, I think uh, Nagishi was very clear about this in interviews and Nobel lectures. I mean, they were interested. Nagishi in particular was talking about he was interested in what elements would transmetallate. Right. Right. You know, he wasn't thinking about Merck making uh, Doravine or something like that you mm-hmm. know, in mm-hmm. 1979 mm-hmm. when he was thinking about this. So, I, I, you know, and I think certainly Grubbs, you know, Grubbs was on my committee and, and Bob was a, a, you know, I dare say a friend. Oh, wow. Were, I, don't yeah, yeah, crazy. I don't know if he would agree with that, but I, I considered him a friend. Um, and, and, you know, he wanted to understand the fundamentals of olefimetathesis, right? Mm. I mean, he and John were very uh, close in that regard, right? Just amazing catalytic reactions. How do they work? And then his mechanistic work and that group just you know, evolved yeah. it into something that's absolutely unbelievable, mm-hmm. uh, remarkable stuff. But I think these were basic science people, right. um, you know. Yeah. Just, stuff. just, some, just some guys or just some people with some questions. There's not, nothing really more. Yeah, exactly. There's really more to the it. Metall- the metallocene stuff, you know, a lot of that grew out of, we're trying to mimic the heterogeneous catalyst and we want mm-hmm. to just learn some things about non-coordinating anions, olefin insertion, that, that kind of business. And all of a sudden now the organometallic quote model compounds are doing things that the heterogeneous stuff you can't do right mm-hmm. with the stereochemical issues for example yeah and uh so so yeah i think you, you should try to work on something that matters of course but we, we we can't you know it's a it's a linear combination maybe right there's applied mm-hmm. and then fundamental and and right. i think having the seesaw be one way or the other is probably you know exclusively one way or the other is bad it is bad yeah so after some time at cornell as a professor um you are now the Edward S. Sanford Professor of Chemistry at Princeton, which, you know, sounds very important. Congratulations. I don't know what that means, but... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Tell my kids that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also editor-in-chief for Organometallics. Now, on top of that, um, which I'd like to talk about too in a little bit, but... Sure. You know, you and your group are some of the pioneers for earth abundant uh, transition metal catalysis, mm-hmm. you know, namely cobalt and iron, um, alkene asymmetric alkene hydrogenation, cross-coupling, CHIization, the whole ordeal. Um, but I'd like to ask you this first, because if I were a betting man, which I don't bet, but um, if I were in Vegas, I'd probably say differently. Um, I think there's no way, you know, as a kid just from Doylestown, PA, you could see where you are now. So, you know, can absolutely. you, can yeah, you like absolutely. kind of believe how far you've come? And like, like, I mean. Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't think this is a dream. I think it's real right. life. You know, when I have to uh, answer all my emails every day, I get a, a reminder that this is real life, right? Yeah. Um, 
No, I, I, I you know, I, I was obviously being completely, hopefully, believe me, that I was being completely honest that, you know, growing up, I, I did not know what a Princeton professor was. I right. didn't know about, you know, even if you would have asked me three years in, um, I was, t- I was telling uh, somebody this the other day, three years in when I was at Cornell, you know, we started seeing the glimpses of something interesting with iron. If you would have told me that however long later, 15 years later, I'd be working with, you know, Merck and Fermanish and, uh, you know, at one point we we're doing a lot of stuff with Exxon Mobil. I mean, to mm-hmm. see how that had grown um, into all these different areas and how many other people work in it now. I mean, I, I never would have guessed that. Um, right. That's not what we, that's, I did not, you know, I, I, I don't have this, I didn't have this grand vision in 2003 of, you know, upending catalysis. Yeah, sure. You know, it, it was just, it was fundamental. It was really fundamental where it came yeah. from. It was uh, at a Gordon conference. I was first Gordon conference I ever went to. I was sitting in the, in the back row and uh, I will never tell you who it was. Somebody was giving a talk that I was not that interested in and uh, just started <laughs> thinking about stuff. You know, it's like, whoa, I'm sitting in this amazing job at Cornell. I've got these really good graduate students, you know, how can we really make a difference? And um, I came back and went to Suzanne Bart and said, I asked her a simple question. Isn't there an iron catalyst that does what Wilkinson's compound does? Mm. And, and this got really scary for us for a long time because we thought there must be, and we're just not searching the literature well enough, right? It's one of these things where there must be somebody wrote a paper and then you find little glimpses of things here and there. Mark Wrighton had done some stuff and, some industrial groups had done some stuff with iron carbonyl and things like that, but there really wasn't that. And then once we do you mind, do you mind to- explaining Wilkinson's yeah. catalyst real quick for anyone that's really not chemistry, or even like they are on chemistry, but they're not an organic chemist real quick. Right. So Wilkinson's compound is a rhodium compound, mm. square planar rhodium compound that in my mind really kind of transitioned organometallic chemistry away from structural curiosities like ferrocene and cool bonding modes to, whoa, we can now make homogeneous catalysts that do what heterogeneous catalysts do. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the extra benefit of you can change the ligands rationally. You can, you know, this is Brad Caro would teach me all these things, right? I mean, (laughs) home and electronic parameter, many discussions about that. Um, But you can, you know, make the metal more electron rich. You can make it more electron poor. You can put chiral environments around the metal, right? Now start doing an anti-selective thing. So so that's what, you know, I think in my mind, Wilkinson's catalyst did is it made that transition along with some other compounds too. But it relied on rhodium, right? It relied on rhodium. And then it just, I think it started with this really fundamental question, right? Why can't iron do what rhodium can do? And Mm. it gets to um, what I said to you before. It then all of a sudden, you, you have this mix in a project of there's a very, very fundamental chemistry question. How in the world do I get iron to do an oxidative addition of H2? Mm. In the world do I get iron to do a CH activation? You know, all the Bergman, CP star, iridium stuff. How, how in the world does iron do that? You know, there were hints in the literature. And then how do you turn it over? Mm. Right. Now, so you got spin states in there and stuff. And then, you know, you talk to some colleagues like Jeff Coates and Dave Collum. And, you know, Dave would say to me, yeah, you know, I, I, consulted Pfizer and I talked to the Pfizer people and they say, yeah, if you, if you could come up with iron catalysts instead of palladium and rhodium, then I think there'd be interest in the pharmaceutical industry on that. And absolutely. Yeah. You know, and so that said, okay, we should keep going. And then, uh, you know, we submitted a few NIH grants and um, we're told this was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> what they say. 
what they say or was your, your, was your uh, submission just well bad? you know the um the, the first review i ever got um on on a jack's submission the first time we ever submitted the, the iron stuff we submitted it as a communication and um you know put my editor hat on for a little bit most of the times when people get papers rejected a lot of the times when people get papers rejected they're just poorly presented and i don't yeah. mean like the sentences and stuff i mean maybe i was a little too northeast philly when i wrote the paper but um <laughs> only you would get it no nah, right? screw them bro. Yeah, no, but it was just it, <laughs> it it wasn't well presented in terms of we had too many different things going on and it just sure. didn't have a nice message and i think it confused some of the reviewers but one of the reviewers notably said why would you want an iron catalyst to do this palladium on carbon i mean th this is like the most boring mm. hydrogenations of all time. We were hydrogenating cyclohexene mm. to cyclohexane, right? And then other reviewers had gotten it as, whoa, this guy's doing something, right? You know, it just might be dumb in terms of like, you know, everything hydrogenates those olefins that are in this paper, but it's what he's doing it with and how in the world is this happening and stuff. And so um, Bill Jones was the associate editor at Jax at the time. And I saw him at a Gordon conference and he pulled me aside and he gave me some advice. He said, you know, that paper is going to be really important. Mm. you got to write it right you know you got to go back and do it and so we turned it into a full paper and it got accepted and it's you know 700 times cited or something like that it's one of the you know it's like that's the one right that's the paper right. and then you know then you find out that the ligand on there is it's called redox active meaning there's electrons going on the ligand and then you think oh my gosh what in the world have i gotten myself into mm. and then i started to collaborate with a guy named carl vicart who was like the world leader in redox active ligands at the time, but never really thought about it in terms of doing, you know, hydrogenation catalysis or right. cross coupling or any of that. And so, you know, we had a couple of uh, grants together and kind of the rest was history. Yeah. It's, that's really cool. Cause I, I think um, a lot of people that maybe aren't familiar too, it's, it's some crazy percentage of uh, pharmaceutical like industry utilize hydrogenations um, isn't it? It's oh, like yeah. some, some crazy number. Like it's used all well, the time. Well, an, an antioselective. So it's half the chiral material in pharma comes from an asymmetric hydrogen. Mm. Half. So that's, that's a crazy. lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. So how, so, you know, where is the state of like that project now? Like what is like, uh, you know, so uh, one is, you know, obviously because CH activation, cross coupling, and then, um, now it's hydrogen. You, you know, yeah. Um, so you, you're asking specifically about hydrogen? Yeah, yeah, hydrogenation. Yeah. yeah, So, so two two fronts there. Um, one is, um, you know, I, I somewhat tongue in cheek say the great part about doing catalysis is you always have a job, and what I mean by that is you can always make a catalyst that's more active, more selective, cheaper to make, easier to mm -hmm. use, right? So, you know, it's like asymptotically approaching perfection. You <laughs> never get there, and uh, <laughs> so in the in the asymmetric hydrogen space. Um, we're working a lot, obviously, with cobalt. Um, mm -hmm. We're searching. So one of the things that we um, have struggled with for a long time is catalyst formation. So, you know, the the underappreciated part of the rhodium catalysis is, you know, you can do high throughput screening by taking a good precursor with a phosphine, mm -hmm. generating your catalyst, screening 400 catalysts in an afternoon. And doing that with cobalt or iron is not easy. And uh, so the beauty is, is we've learned with cobalt how to do it with what we call neutral cobalt, cobalt zero, cobalt two. Mm -hmm. We have high throughput methods for that. Um, those catalysts are really still shining today. I was on a call this morning where these are being used to hydrogenate alkenes asymmetrically that rhodium won't. Mm. Um, rhodium gets killed by them. These are 
parts of molecules that may turn into drugs. So it's really exciting. Um, same issues apply though. Got to get the catalyst loading way down. Right. You know, people other than my group have to be able to make the catalyst, you know, in a plant somewhere. Happens. Um, but the space where is really cool is that you can also make catalysts that are cobalt one with a plus charge like rhodium. So, so you, we now have catalysts that can be in one oxidation state or another. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with a precious metal that I know of. You don't have, you know, palladium one catalysts, palladium two catalysts and palladium three and they're all different. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's cool. And then, and then in that space too, we're, we're trying to get back to iron. Right. I mean, right. you know, the, again, now we're back to the fundamental question. How in the world do you do this with iron? I want to um, pick your brain about that a little bit. Like, so what's, what is kind of your thought process? What's your approach to this? Because as I mean, these, I'm actually not as familiar with cobalt, but definitely with iron um, I'm familiar with is it can enter. I guess we can have a discussion about, oh, we don't have to go there, but you know, what is an oxidation state, but iron can enter different oxidation states between, you know, two electrons, one mm -hmm. electron, it's been crossover. So do you, are you like trying to understand that to uh, like that aspect of the metal to help your with your chemistry or are you yeah. kind of high Absolutely. throughput high throughput everything uh, no we don't no 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 we don't high throughput um that um usually the high throughput the most of the high throughput stuff we do is in collaboration so okay. the high throughput stuff we do is in collaboration with merck for the hydrage space and then uh, the cross coupling space we, we do some of it with um with bms but um th that work is you know it's not as much catalyst discovery often as catalyst optimization mm -hmm. So a lot of the discovery comes from us and then it just saves you time if you can make, you know, 50 ligands or there's, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the iron question is, you know, at least in the cycloaddition chemistry that we do, the fact that there are spin crossover compounds and, and all these complicated electronic structures, that actually turns out to be the cool part. And that, right. and that turns out to be why you can cyclodimerize two olefins to make a cyclobutane, right? Mm. Um, we think. I mean, it's very hard to prove, by the way. But um, all the data right now suggests that these unusual electronic structures, redox active ligands, all that stuff, do these really unusual, it's this chemically recyclable polyolefin that we made, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so, so there, having all this complexity, we think, is an advantage, um, mm -hmm. in the hydrogenation space, we, we have yet to get anything to really be at the level of rhodium or cobalt. Um, sure. you know, a cobalt in my mind, you know, I think the, the, one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten is, you know, it's the Merck team, like looks at cobalt now, like they do, mm -hmm. you know, when they have a project, they look at cobalt, um, you know, maybe not as often as rhodium, but they're, they're starting to, to look right. People are right. starting to say, okay, you know, cobalt's part of the catalyst space now. Iron, no way. No, nobody knows what that is. <laughs> right. Uh, I didn't say nobody, but not that I've seen in the literature, and, and we certainly don't. What do you think? What do you think the apprehension is? Is just simply because we just oh, it's don't not apprehension. It. I think it's just we haven't solved it. Okay. We try. Um, but what but do you? It, so, good question to pick your brain about. Then is like what? What is going wrong then? Like what? What? What about iron is just not clicking? So, so the problem is so uh, you know I I don't want to offend any of my former students because you know that we do have probably one of the most active olefin hydrogenation catalyst of all time mm -hmm. and it's iron it's iron based there's an acs catalysis paper the problem is is that the ligand that you need to get there is this complicated pincer ligand mm. and to make you know it and, and this is an this is an interesting sort of philosophical discussion so when we go to merck and we talk about cobalt catalysis we tap into their 200 phosphine library 
right? Mm-hmm. So they've got sure. the libraries all there. Now, somebody made all those probably over 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. When you then go to the iron ligands that work, these pincers, it takes like, you know, a week and a half to make one. And then you have to get it on the iron and that's a chore. So it's like the whole mm. synthetic bottleneck. So yeah, we could do it. And if I ran a group of a hundred, um, I wouldn't want ever to do that. But, you know, I think if you just set an army of people on it, it's, you know enough, but it's not, that's not practical, right. right? And the compounds are super hard to make. They're, they're iron dinitrogen compounds. I mean, they're like wickedly air sensitive and all of that business. So, uh, you know, cobalt works in methanol, mm-hmm. right? So cobalt works in air and methanol and all that stuff. So it's like, great. But, right. but iron, we're so far away from that. Um, and it's, so right now it looks like iron is iron zero two in a really strong ligand field mm-hmm. and that works. Um, but I don't know that we as an organometallic chemist have the right ligands there yet. Okay. Um, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, maybe if, you know, in 40 years, somebody builds up the, NHC pincer ligand library, it'll, you know, somebody will look at this video and say, he was, yeah. <laughs> he was way yeah. off the mark, yeah. probably like most of this, but. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a very, uh, well, like, like we, we keep saying, it's very, uh, there's a lot of work to be done though. Um, yeah. So the last thing I'll answer you about hydrogen too, that I don't mm-hmm. want to say it's just olefin. Um, one of the things that we're super into now is arine hydrogenation and heterohydrogenation. Mm. So we're, we're back doing, you know, early metal chemistry, molybdenum chemistry, and yeah. uh, we're doing asymmetric. So, so the cool thing is, is again, fundamental questions. Um, when you take organometallic chemistry, you learn a lot about how uh, asymmetric hydrogenation works, the classic Halpern experiments and mm-hmm. the Clark Landis and all of this business about major minor Curtin Hammett. If I were to ask, you know, what about arine hydrogenation, benzene hydrogenation, how does that work? What are good mechanisms for that? What are the, you know, you don't know, right? And you talk to people in pharma and this is an incredibly powerful transformation if you can do it because you can Suzuki your your daylights out, make flat molecules and then hydrogenate them, set many, many stereocenters. And then mm. you've got three-dimensionality using chemistry you know how to do. And it's just the hydrogenation part, the hard yeah. part. So, yeah. <laughs> So, so we're, we're working, I mean, this, this is really exciting to me, um, that we're working on this and it's been a lot of fun. So, yeah. so we've got metal hydrides that insert aerines. I mean, that's crazy, right? You make a molybdenum hydride and it inserts benzene. Yeah. Like it does ethylene. I mean, that's like crazy, right? Yeah. I was, I was looking at your uh, most recent publications. Yeah. It's a, this molybdenum catalyzed arine hydrides, which is, yeah, it's really, it sounds really cool. I mean, I hope, hope, hope it works. <laughs> I hope it works. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much is going to work, but yeah. Um, and no, it's, it's something that's really exciting for us because, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's that fundamental and the applied, right? Mm-hmm. If you pull it off and you can do it with, you know, nitrogen heterocycles and pyridines and stuff, that's immensely powerful mm-hmm. to medicinal and, and, you know, pharmaceutical chemists. Yeah. The last thing I want to talk to you about is like being the editor in chief at Organometallics. Yeah. Um, so I haven't had a chance to, I haven't had a chance to read your, um, your scope of 2023, which you got, you, you published recently. Yeah. Um, but, you know, how is it balancing, you know, one, your family, two, your research lab, and then three, you know, organometallics and teaching on top of that, too? Like, yeah, um, how do you manage to do it all? <laughs> when you say it that way, it sounds a little, uh, little sad. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, my, the people in my lab will laugh if they watch this because they hear me say this. Sometimes people will reach out to me and say, um, I need you to do this by tomorrow. 
you know, mm. I need you to write me a recommendation letter by tomorrow. And and when I get frustrated, I always say the same thing. Does everyone think I sit in my office and just stare out the window? Like you know, <laughs> I'm waiting for work to come in. <laughs> so I have nothing to do. Um, don't ask Brad that question because he used to have an office right next to mine. So maybe he'll tell you I do stare out the window. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's hard um, to stay on top of things. Um, you know, you're getting on to something really personal, maybe, you know, you do so many things and sometimes you feel like you're not good at any of them. You know what I mean? You switch mm. something. Um, I, I like all of them, obviously. I mean, the, I would never do something that I, I wouldn't don't like to do. I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, the, the day job um, has a lot of elements to it that I wish would go away. Mm -hmm. You know, the faculty position, I mean, this administrative bloat that we have now in academia is just like, I, I don't remember Burkhardt doing all this stuff. I mean, mm. maybe did and I just didn't see it, but uh, like email and like this instant gratification or what, you know, it used to be like when I was an assistant professor, I could tell somebody like, Hey, I'm going to the Gordon conference in uh, Galveston. Like, and I that was kind of code word for like, don't bother me for a week. And now it's like, what, Galveston doesn't have Wi-Fi? You know, it's like, you can still take a Zoom meeting at lunch, can't you? And it's like, th that's changed. And and that's sad for academia. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just all this, like you get it's pulled like pedal to metal. Yeah. yeah, pedal to the metal. And, you know, you just don't do as much science as you would hope. I mean, right. maybe others, you know, colleagues, maybe buyers when he was on here, maybe he's got it figured out. I, I don't. <laughs> Um, and I get a lot of help here. I mean, I have great people that work with me and, and all that, especially at Organometallics. I have an amazing team of people. Um, th that actually is a lot of fun. Um, mm -hmm. I would say the work I do at Organometallics, very little of it is like administrative bloat. The, the yeah. ACS does a great job with that. I, I handle the papers, you know, and assign them to the associate editors and think about the bigger picture for the journal and, and that kind of stuff. So that, that actually, the Organometallics part, um, believe it or not, is one of the more scientific aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, certainly more than my job at Princeton, believe it or not. If you looked at it percentage wise, you know, mm. I mean, I spend more time dealing with who knows what here. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. But <laughs> so from yourself, so what what are like the outlooks for organotoxic? Like, what are you like? What are you hoping to bring? Like, that's a great forward? question. Um, so scientific publishing has gotten complicated yeah. in the last decade. Um, you know, I've been at the journal since 2015. And even in that time, it's been completely upside down, you know, and I tell people this all the time, I mean, publishing itself, everything from, you know, the New York Times to The Economist to Organometallics is undergoing a revolution. And I think like many revolutions, you don't know how it's going to end. Mm. <laughs> and uh, maybe I'll end up in the guillotine. I don't, I don't know. But, um, you know, open access is a thing. It, it's, it's an inevitability. It's right. thermodynamic. It's going to happen. And I don't know that we, meaning the scientific community, know how we're going to transition. We know, I think we, it's like, you know, it's like a reaction, like, you know, the products and you know where right. you are, but it's like, you, you got to figure out how you're going to get there. Right. What's the mechanism? And we don't, NACS is working on this along with all the other big publishers, but as that transition happens, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yep. And I think a, a challenge for the journal, that's, that's a little bit of it. But the other is, you know, when I was in graduate school and you work with John, unless something extraordinary happened you were either going to publish your paper in jacks or organometallics mm -hmm. like that's that's the way it was in the group you, if it was great you published it in jacks and if it was really good you publish you know just more specialized you publish in organometallics i mean there wasn't acs catalysis there wasn't nature catalysis maybe he would publish in angavanta but like most american groups didn't do that at the time yeah. there was no chemical science back then you know the journal 
so there's, yep. you know, I think when I started at ACS, I think there were 51 journals. Now there are 80. So, yeah. so right there, you, you know, if you look at the number of titles that have come up in the past, whatever year, eight years, it's a lot. Are there that many more researchers, right? And especially mm. after the COVID times, you know, research productivity probably has gone down. So a huge problem for the journal, maybe I shouldn't say problem, but the opportunity for organometallics, and this is important. I think it's one of the most important things I can say to you today is I firmly believe that the field of organometallic chemistry is as strong as it's ever been. Mm. And you go to more and more places, meaning you look at organic methods groups, you look at materials groups, they're all doing organometallic chemistry. They may not want to say it, but they are, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the total synthesis groups are now doing methods and they're all using palladium catalysis or iron catalysis or whatever, you know, photoredox is all, you know, metal chemistry. And the journal, I don't think, has captured all of that. You know, mm. I think the field has grown and the, the borders of organometallic chemistry have grown and the journal has not done that. You know, mm. I, it, and, and that's the real challenge is how do you get the people doing all these different things that don't maybe identify with because they think the journal is about, you know, CP compounds and crystal structures. And, and that's right. what that editorial is about is it's not that. I mean, we we love that and it always will be part of that. And that's what made organometallic chemistry and the journal great. Mm -hmm. But there's so much more. And, you know, one of the things that's in the editorial is you don't need to have an isolated metal carbon bond to publish a paper in organometallics. You don't need an elemental analysis with a crystal structure to publish in organometallics. You don't. And yeah. I think that's turned off a lot of people. Mm. Um, How do you mean? Like they, they had that perception. There was a oh. perception for years that like, if I don't have a crystal structure and elemental analysis and like, you know, the focus of the paper is not the structure of the organometallic compound. Mm -hmm. It's not appropriate for the journal. And that, that's I just, it, that's not true. And if you have a great catalytic method and, and one of the things the editorial talks about is, so we, you know, back to buyers, you know, he does a lot of, uh, he's been a real pioneer in the chemistry of, of polymerizing lactide. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those, uh, I use that as an example in the editorial, that a lot of those polymerizations are done with main group uh, compounds that aren't organometallic. And the propagating species are metal alkoxides. So there's really no metal carbon bonds. But when you actually read the paper, it reads like an olefin polymerization paper, you know, so it's like the same concepts. Right. And the same kind of, same kind of kinetics, tacticity and active species and Catalyst lifetime, all the things that organometallic chemists care about. So we publish those. Yeah. And we want to publish those. But it's not, you know, if you want to be like IUPAC judge with your gavel, <laughs> that's not really an organometallic compound. You're right, but the journal will publish that. So that, yeah. that's really what the story is. And then there's a little bit at the end of the editorial about scope, substrate mm -hmm. scope. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, Marissa Kozlowski led this um, at org led about the 20 substrates you know i'm a firm believer in that you don't need to publish 100 substrates in a paper i uh i know when we have our uh lit survey with brad and he's like if you bring up more than like 20 substrates you know i'm, I'm like we're shutting this down and i have a good laugh about yeah, it because I mean, it's like you know you, you want to have and then marissa articulates this really well that you want to have diversity you want to have each right. substrate teach you something Mm. And putting an isopropyl group and turning it into a, you know, isobutyl group seven carbons away from where the action's at usually. Yeah. Doesn't talk about it, right. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Another so gripe, a really, a really quick gripe that I have with um, journals in general is the idea of like, whatever happened to just like a, 
a calm paper where it was like three pages long and it was like, here's what we did. Oh my God. So I need like, you to Google something after this. You need okay. to Google organometallics flash communication. Okay. I don't know what year this was, but we went through this. It was before the pandemic. Um, I think we define modern times that way before and after the pandemic. Um, sure, I don't know. It feels that way. Yeah. It feels that way. Um, but certainly before the pandemic, we decided at Organometallics, you know, I'm I'm an old school guy in a lot of sense, that the two-page communication needs to come back. Yes, it does. And uh, I, I wrote an editorial on this called Communicating Science. I, I remember it because it has just a short and kind of hopefully catchy title. But the idea is to have this two-page communication come back and that, you know, um, there are, I was talking about this the other day. There's a, there's a paper by a guy named Masuda in mm. uh, Angavanta Kami. And he takes these molybdenum dinitrogen compounds. This paper's from 2019. Molybdenum dinitrogen compounds that were made by Chat and others in the 70s. These things were like famous dinitrogen compounds, but they never actually did much in terms of like making ammonia and stuff. You could add acid and things. But this guy in 2019 and his group figures out you can add ferrocinium and oxidize this compound by one electron and it cleaves nitrogen and makes a molybdenum nitride. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. This is one of the most brilliant reactions that I have seen in like the last five years. Mm. And my question is, how in the world do you publish? You got one reaction and it's awesome. But I think like you send it to some places and there's an expectation for a four page communication. Now, all of a sudden you're doing a mechanistic study. You're doing DFT that uh. may or may not be relevant to anything. And it's like, that's not what science should be about, right? He should be able to publish and his group should be able to publish that. And have it go through review really fast because it you don't have to scrutinize the thing. It's right. like, well, it's a cool reaction. He's got what he says he has. It's characterized the right way. Let's go. And so we tried to bring that back. And so we have these things and we we encourage people to submit two-page comms. Um, the uptake hasn't been as much as I'd hoped. You know, I was hoping to see. We, we got a few. Um, we got a few, mostly from the main group community. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm a huge. I, it's funny because. I, I don't, I haven't read the, I shouldn't say this, but I haven't read the author guidelines for Jackson a little while. Um, I don't think it's a requirement that you publish a four page communication, right? I think it says up to, right? Right. But people mm -hmm. do that. And then what it does is the reviewers then say, you know, you could, you know, I think Eric Carrera would say, yeah, if you have a cool thing, you can publish it in Jack's, but then the reviewers are going to say, well, you still got two pages yeah. to go here, Aiden, you know, <laughs> I want to see X, Y, and Z. And in the old days, you would say, Sorry, I'm at the page limit. I'm going to write a full paper to right. follow up and answer all these questions. But I want to get this cool result out now because it yeah. matters. And, and so I, I don't whatever, know. Yeah, whatever happened, like, where did the philosophy change on that? Because it's like, I mean, it makes sense to me. It's like, you did something cool. I'm going to polish about it. I don't have all the answers yet, but I will. Have and a full I think paper. it's like the life of, you know, this is not me speaking as an expert, but this is just my observation is that I think it was well-intentioned and it's just unintended consequences. So I think what mm. happened was, in the early 2000s, I think this is when Peter Stang was there, you know, graphics got better, right? right. And getting, you know, you weren't solving a crystal structure in a month. You were solving it in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. People had just more stuff in their in their papers. So they said, okay, we're going to go to three pages. And then three pages turned to four. And then the community gets a hold of that. And then four pages really becomes now an abstract for 150 page supporting information. That's really the paper that nobody's really reading. And so it's yeah. just kind of like, you know, things just go, go off the rails. And and now the question that I ask is the, the old days was that a communication was meant to be rapid communication of science, meaning that you send it in and you got something hot and 
the implicit message to people was we don't we're not doing all the mechanism right now we're not doing everything we just yeah. want to get this out because it's so cool we're communicating it right mm-hmm. now with the chem archive like i don't know how can you compete with that you, yeah like, right like you can put all kinds of stuff up on the chem archive like right away and then do things to it so so again this way hopefully this brings us a little bit full circle in that you know publication landscape is changing and yeah. uh you know you you can I can sit here in my, you know, rocking chair and shake my cane and say, it's not like it used to be. It's not going back and you got to embrace it. Right. And uh, learn how to, how to operate in the environment. And I, I think science is better for it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think the chem archive has been a great thing. Yeah. I think it's a great thing for science. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think like anybody, you were skeptical in the beginning. Sure. It's new, it's new, right. You know, you're successful in the old way. Why would you want to do a new way? Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's taken off. It's, it, it's done a great thing and people love it i think brad puts a lot of stuff up there i put stuff up there occasionally mm-hmm. um, i mostly forget <laughs> you know? it's like, I, th- well, I think i mean yeah like you mentioned before favorite. though like like you mentioned before i mean obviously like, uh, we're in such a technology age um you know there's so many open source coding open source like computational stuff so it's like yeah obviously the next step is going to be open source like just um, yeah, nmr everything yeah, yeah everything yeah right i mean you should be able to you know and and Publishers are talking about this. Like, you know, you you have something on the archive and I'm going to look at your NMR spectrum. I should be able to get the FID and put it on my own, uh, you know, MNOVA or whatever it is right. and look at it and blow up the peaks and look for coupling constants or impurities or whatever I want. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, we're there. I mean, the old days, you know, in grad school, I remember I used to get on the photocopier and have to photocopy the spectrum <laughs> put it in the SI, right? Can't imagine. <laughs> Can't imagine. And walk uphill both ways to, to work and all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think all, you know, all that's changed and, um, publishing has to change with it you know the supporting information has just grown because data is just that much easier to get and and share right Mm -hmm. all right professor chirk i want to thank you so much for uh coming on yeah this is great this was a lot of fun fun. yeah yeah hopefully hopefully uh yeah bring on more guests and actually i actually reach out to marissa kozlowski i'd like her to come on soon i would like to talk to her oh she'd be great yeah yeah she she would be um yeah she's she's got a lot of uh interesting kind of views of things and Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think she'd be a great guest on this for yeah. sure. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, my we'll pleasure. To, Say hi to Brad do. for me and good luck in your, in your research. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, you know, we'll have to do this again soon. Hopefully. Yeah, uh, sure. I don't know if I have anything else to say. It's interesting for an hour. Again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about. You know. <laughs> well, you know, so. I don't know if I want to talk to you in two weeks, you know, if, uh, if the Eagles <laughs> win, I'll be happy uh, to talk. If not, then this never happens. I'll, I'll send my <laughs> condolences to you. So, yeah, right. All right, folks, that was it. Episode, right. I think 28 now. So, all right. See you next time.